The World According to Gorf. Shalom. 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 Hi, everybody. This is Jordan B. Gorf and Cole Gorf, your host of The World According to Gorf on The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Longtime listeners know that I enjoy spending the summer by going around to summer camps, Jewish summer camps specifically, and giving my Jewish cartoon workshop where we applied the Parshat HaShavua towards doing incredible comics with kids that either tell the story of the Parsha or filter the story through their experiences so that everybody can learn about the portion of the week through the kids' eyes. And then we collect a comic book and we hand it out and there's many good laughs and a little PR as well. And it's all good fun. Well, during my travels to summer camps this year, and I think I've been to a half dozen at this point, I have landed presently in Ojai, California, specifically Camp Ramah in Ojai, California. And I met a remarkable individual whose experiences I wanted to share with you. I'm going to let her give a short introduction, and then we're going to have a little chat because I have to say that her accomplishments are rather unique in the Jewish world. And after all, that's what the world, according to Gorf, is all about. Meeting interesting people, talking with them, schmoozing with them, and now giving them a chance to speak. Go ahead. Hi, everyone. My name is Bonnie Schwartz. Uh, Gorf has found me at Camp Vermont in California, even though I actually live in New York City. I happen to be the second Jewish woman to have successfully crossed the English Channel without a boat. I mean, a boat next to me, but by swimming. Now, by swimming, you mean that you were not pulled out of the water at any point. You covered the distance. What is the distance? Uh, the distance is 22 nautical miles. The swim turns out to be about 30, and I entered the water from Shakespeare Beach in Dover and was not touched and did not rest or get on the boat until I reached Calais, France. What time did you have to leave in order to accomplish the swim? I left at 2 a.m. from England. And how long were you in England to adjust to the time in order to be able to do this? Or did you tell the uh, the pilot of the United flight, you know, give me a parachute, there's the channel, I'm ready to go? <laughs> that would have been a much easier idea. I was actually in London for about a week. Actually, an interesting story is that I... I landed in London on July 7th, 2005, and if the date sounds familiar, it's because it was the days of the London bombings. So my flight actually landed about 15 minutes after it happened, so it was a little stressful at the airport. And as a New Yorker, once I was able to see the news, I found out that Giuliani was in London, and so I instantly relaxed and said, Giuliani's here. It's okay. So uh, once we got to London, it so, was... So in other words, it was Giuliani tea time. Yes. Julie. As opposed to Giuliani time. Yeah, all right. Sorry. Very... <laughs> New York humor. Yes. Got it. Let's take a step back. When you were younger, were you a regular swimmer? How does one prepare? How does one even decide that they want to become a, an accomplished swimmer, much less one who achieves one of the rarest successes in all of distance swimming? I started swimming when I was six years old. I saw another little girl at the local swim pool, and she was swimming, and I tugged on my mom's sleeve and said, Mommy, Mommy, I want to do that. So 
like any nice Jewish parent, she put me in a local swim program. I probably tried several sports as a kid, softball, tennis, gymnastics. I don't think I was very good at sports on land. And so the water seemed to be the place for me and I just kept doing it. I swam through middle school, high school, and then eventually I was recruited to swim at college. Now, before you go on to college, Mm For those of our listeners who are not familiar with the regimented world of swimming, both amateur and professional, of course, post-professional master swim, and fair disclosure, I'm a master swimmer myself, and I try to swim every day or as regularly as I can, so this is a world that is familiar to me and interesting to me. I want to open it up to our listeners as well. So tell them, when you are in elementary school and high school especially, what is the schedule like? What do you have to do to train? What is the competition like, etc.? So I was swimming five or six days a week. Practices were usually about two hours. Occasionally we would have double practices, which means we would go before school and then we would come back again after school. Give me the hours. 5 a.m.? Five at, generally, most swimmers get up at about 5 a.m. and are at the pool between 5.30 and 6 a.m. And after school? 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. It was usually just enough time to finish your homework and before dinner. And how were your grades? I was a straight-A student. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> for some reason, all athletes, not for some reason, the organization and competitive spirit that you are instilled with by sports tends to drive you scholastically as well. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. In fact, uh, the year that I was swimming in college, or the four years that I was in college, it so happened that the highest GPA average on our campus was from the swim team. That's an interesting statistic. Mm -hmm. From all of the sports, the highest GPA was by far the Johns Hopkins swim team. And would you say in high school that you were the leader of the pack? Where do you fit into the uh, competitive landscape? I would say I was mid-pack. I was good enough to be recruited to Johns Hopkins. At the time, I was on the A relay, but I was a decent college swimmer. What is decent? Give me your time on, uh, well, I don't know what your event was. What was your event? I was recruited to swim the 50 free and the 100 free. Okay, give me your best times. So in 1997, I could go a sub 25 in the 50 and a sub 55 in the 100. Give us the time for the latest Olympic swimmers so we have a point of comparison. The women can probably swim 100 freestyle well under 50 points, and that's a 50-meter pool as opposed to a 25-yard pool. The difference between meters and yards, it's indoors and outdoors, but why the difference between the two? And there are differences. Timing-wise, you can usually safely say it's about 10% slower to swim in a 50-meter pool. So the difference between yards and meters. And then, generally speaking, when you swim in a meter pool, the length of the pool is 50 meters as opposed to an indoor pool, the length is 25 yards. And I always get confused. So it's yards is indoors and meters is outdoors, generally speaking? Generally speaking, yes. And it must be because when they created the original swimming pools, it was in meters overseas, and the weather is so nice in France and England that clearly they were dominant in the decision-making process for outdoor pools, yes? <laughs> clearly. I think that is a very decent assessment. Okay, good, good, good. So Johns Hopkins for college, four years there? Four years there. And what were you studying? Economics. Economics. And you were studying the economics of your stroke? The economics of the social life, the economics of my stroke, and the economics of having a great time in Baltimore. (laughs) And a nice Jewish community in Baltimore. Did you intersect with the Jewish community at all while you were there? Uh, A lovely Jewish community in Baltimore. In fact, I was instrumental in starting 
the Johns Hopkins Hillel as opposed to being a part of Hillel of Greater Baltimore. How is Hillel and Johns Hopkins thriving these days? Do you keep up with it? Absolutely. I'm on the board of Hopkins Hillel. It's one of the largest Hillels in terms of number of active students from the Jewish community that participate in Hillel. And recently we celebrated 10-year anniversary of our Hillel building. Mazal tov. That's very nice. That's a major accomplishment to go from... I won't say nothing, obviously you had the infrastructure of the previous Hillel, but to form your own institution and to build a building and so forth, that's a tremendous accomplishment for the Jewish people. Yes, it was really exciting to be a part of it, and the small Jewish world story is that upon our 10th anniversary celebration is where I ran into my former Hillel rabbi and the current executive director of Camp Vermont in California. And that would be? That would be Rabbi Joe Menashe. Whom we all call Rabbi Joe. Rabbi Joe. And that led you to what? To leaving New York, a hot, sticky New York for the summer, and ending up in Ojai, California as the Rosh Brecha. How many kids do you see on, in the course of one day at the Brecha, the pool at Camp Ramon, Ojai? Which, by the way, you should know is a lovely campus. I attended Camp Ramon, Ojai for three years myself as a youth, and I have fantastic memories from it. Uh, I also carried some of the experiences from Camp Ramah, Ojai, into my other camping experiences in Camp Moshava and so forth. And one of the things that I enjoy most is seeing some of the traditions that I brought over from Camp Ramah to Camp Moshava. And these days, nobody remembers where they came from. But that's a side point. In the Brecha, in the pool for Camp Ramah, give us a sense of your schedule and how many kids you were seeing in the course of a day. So I open the Brecha at 6.30 in the morning as my passion is swimming, and I want to make sure that anyone who wants to be able to swim, Steph or Hanichim, can come in in the morning and take advantage of the beautiful Brecha that we have. We are open then from 10 a.m. until 6.30 p.m. through most of the day, and each different Ada gets a time in the pool to spend. And sometimes even later, because I think you had Mahon that came at midnight or something? Yes, we often have Leil Elatz, nighttime swimming. Uh, each Ada gets a chance to take advantage of night swimming. And Mahon, our oldest campers, came at midnight on Monday night. And is there swim instruction at Camp Ramon, Ojai? We do some swim instruction. It's uh, We see a lot of kids, and we want to give them a chance to enjoy the brecha as well as learn. Because it has a slide and all the amenities that these days modern summer camps have, Absolutely. water sports. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the unique facet of this Ramah as opposed to the other Ramahs, I don't want to say as opposed to, but uh, if you're comparing them, is that this one being in the desert, and that's the point I was getting to before, does not have a lake. Right, so the Brecha is very important because it's their only access to water. So I see roughly 500 campers come through the doors of our Brecha every day. Wow, wow, that's something. Can you, can we reflect on something, a little bit of a side point, but I'm curious. As a kid, I recall having swim instruction every single day. In fact, we used to have swimming twice. We'd have swim instruction once, and then we'd have free swim at another point in the day. And that was rather important to my growth, at, not only as a swimmer, but also just as a person. After all, it says in the Torah that one of the responsibilities of parents is to teach your kids how to swim. Why has that kind of slacked off? Why is there less emphasis on actual swim instruction these days? I think because it has become something that parents are more aware of, that a lot of a lot of campers are coming in already having taken swimming lessons in their home home area, whether it's at their JCC or in a home pool. And so most of the campers are coming to camp already knowing how to swim. 
And so the beauty of having a pool in the desert is, for me, allowing kids to have a great time in the water and associate happiness and joy with the brecha and not the monotony of, oh, I have to take a swim lesson. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. And when you're in New York City, how are you swimming? So I swim outdoors all year round in Coney Island, Brighton Beach specifically. I swim on the weekends. When there's snow on the beach, it's my happiest time in the water. And the water temperature is? Drops down to below 40 and in the summer goes up to above 80, in which point it's too hot for me and... How does one swim? You're not Russian, I don't think, right? I, I do have some Russian blood in me. <laughs> okay, so that, that begins to explain it. Are you, are you kind of the, um, uh, I don't know, the water spawn of Russian uh, stock and maybe whales? Is that how you're able to go in water that's so cold that for most people, they would go into hypothermic shock and lose their breath within two seconds? That could be. I hadn't thought about that, but there's definitely... Uh... Definitely some Russian stock and perhaps some other water creatures in my background that I don't know about. <laughs> well, explain it then, because my understanding from previous conversations with you is that you don't like putting on a wetsuit. Absolutely not. I feel that God created our bodies that can adapt to just about anything. And so instead of putting on a wetsuit, I spent many years just dipping myself in cold water and letting myself adjust. And as a result, I can handle cold temperatures, which makes my life a lot easier. I don't have to worry so much when it's cold out. I rarely, if ever, get a cold, and I can participate in cold water. That There are beautiful areas of the country that only have cold water, and my dream at one point is to swim with penguins. And we're not talking about penguins at the Central Park Zoo. No, as much as I love the penguins at the Central Park Zoo, my goal is to go down to Antarctica or Chile and just be able to go for a leisurely swim with some penguins. I have to revisit this because I still can't fathom it. When I swim, the coldest that I can bear is maybe the high 60s, low 70s. You're talking about temperatures where the average person can't take it on land without a jacket and you're in water salt water many times. Correct. What does it feel like when you get in? Uh, I won't deny that it's a little bit painful, but from experience, I know that after the pain comes a little bit of numbness, and after the numbness just comes a beautiful feeling of being at one with the water and the surroundings and being able to take advantage of beautiful places on the earth. Is it a spiritual experience for you? You know, that's a good way to describe it. It does feel spiritual. I love the way the water feels, the way it looks, the creatures that are out there that most people don't get to see. We discussed something earlier that I want to bring up. I have what you call a depth. A depth freak out. Right, right, right. Can you explain what that is? Some people get scared when they recognize that the bottom of the ocean is very, very far below them, or a pool is very deep and they can't easily touch the bottom. It's irrational. It's no different than, I guess, people have agoraphobia, and I tend to get over it after about a couple hundred yards or meters. And yet it happens, and I, I, I was embarrassed to talk about it. And I'm glad to see that it is actually a semi-occurring phenomenon. Definitely. When... And do you get it? I don't get it. I get the opposite. You know, the human body floats on the water. So even when you're swimming, when you stop swimming 
at most, your body's going to sink a little bit below the surface, so maybe a few inches to maybe a foot below the surface. In fact, most people would be hard-pressed to get themselves any lower in the water. But the fear takes over, and they feel they're going to go to the bottom. However, the way I see it, since I swim in open water, and mostly New York City open water, I want whatever is on the bottom of those rivers to be as far away from me as possible. So you swim mostly in New York City. I think people associate New York City with the fiction in movies where you're going you're gonna to be swimming with the needles and the dead bodies and all that sort of stuff. And again, absolutely no offense to my beloved hometown of New York City. Uh, this is certainly the, uh, the mythology that's been built up around the water. What is the reality of swimming in the East River or the Hudson River or any of the bays? So the reality is the water around New York City has is the cleanest as it's ever been. Uh, we have multiple races in the, during the summer that are in the East River, in the Hudson River, in the Harlem River, and certainly in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the water is is fantastic. It's fantastic. We still need to, as a community, pay attention to the water and keep it cleaner and watch what we're putting in our sewer systems. However, the water is fantastic. How does the water on the East Coast compare to the West Coast? For example, you told me that you did a 10K race, I believe, in Santa Cruz, and you even won that race. You'll have to tell us about that. But how does the water compare from one place to another? One of the beautiful things around the world is that each area of water has a unique feel to it, whether it's the salt content, the way the waves run, the way the air is, the way the topography of the land is. I mean, I find it all fascinating. When we compare land... We talk about, oh, the mountains and desert terrain is quite lovely in Ojai, California, which, by the way, is somewhere between, it's near Oxnard, the, uh, the winery area where there's a kosher winery now. You should definitely come. It's a neat place. So it's basically between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. But compare that to the, the urban landscape of New York City, and obviously you have quite the disparity of views, shall we say, and experiences. Every sense is going to be touched differently. When you're in the water, most people would assume, I would assume, okay, it's salt water. You can't really see that much. When you look up, maybe you see sky, maybe there's a piece of land, but that's about it. It's basically all the same. Not to mention that it can be very monotonous to the average person. They can't understand how can you spend so long without the scenery. I do triathlons occasionally. I divide triathlon athletes into two categories. Those people who are runners first and those people who are swimmers first. The swimmers first seem to love the tranquility of the water. It's like being in an isolation tank. I know I come up with my best cartoon ideas and musical ideas and I organize my day and everything while I'm in the water. And for me, an hour might as well be a minute. For most people who are runners first, an hour is like a year in the water. That's so interesting. That's just about exactly how I see it. I absolutely love being in the water, and the last way I would describe open water swimming would be monotonous. There's always something to look at, whether it be the fish or water creatures that are below me, or in my case, the cityscape of Brooklyn or New York while I'm swimming. I love the peaceful time. I take that time in the water to, as you mentioned, think about my day, think about what's going on. As the swims get longer and longer, I get more involved, and I think at one point during a six-hour swim, I might have solved world peace. However, I got out of the water, and it swiftly left me. <laughs> right. It got washed away. It got washed away with the waves. So the difference between East Coast, West Coast, which is a huge generalization, is just what I can see from the water. So on the West Coast, I definitely appreciate the mountains and the cliffs and 
the way the water feels, the salt content is different and the way the waves push me around is different or the way I work with the waves. I'd liken it to running through a city versus running through a park versus running through mountains. The scenery is beautiful and you're thinking about different things and it feels slightly different body position wise while you're swimming. When did you discover that you could swim long distances? So it wasn't until after college I was asked to be a fill-in for a person on a relay team that was going to swim around Manhattan. And so being freshly out of college and well-trained, I said, sure. And I did the first relay around Manhattan in 2001, and I absolutely fell in love. So I decided the next year I needed to do the swim by myself. I wanted to do it solo. And so I spent the next year training, and I was learning slowly that the longer the distance, the better I was doing in the field. So I did the Manhattan Marathon swim in 2002, which is a 28-and-a-half-mile swim around my island of Manhattan. And from there, I thought maybe that would be the end of my swimming career. I would swim around Manhattan and be done. And like most extreme athletes, you get the bug, it bites you, and that's it. I just wanted more. So as I was competing, I noticed that the longer the distance, the colder the water, the better in the field I was doing. And eventually, I came across Lynn Cox's article in The New Yorker in which she described her harrowing swim across the English Channel, and I decided I had to do it. We're speaking with Bonnie Schwartz. This is The World According to Gorf. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Jewess who swam the English Channel. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org.
This is Gorf, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, your host, of course, on The Stunt Show, The World According to Gorf. We are in Ojai, California, nestled in the desert mountains somewhere between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles, talking with swimmer, extreme swimmer, but extremely nice person, Bonnie Schwartz. Tell us about the channel swim. So my introduction to the channel swim in Dover late night the captain came aboard the ship, and he took one look at me, and he said, you're a skinny American girl, and I don't know why you're bothering to try. And your response? Probably not appropriate for this radio show. So in other words, you had some confidence. You didn't let him talk you down. Absolutely not. My coach refused to go into the hull of the boat with him and stayed on the deck, and I refused to speak to him until... Well, what happened at the end? <laughs> Wait, well, wait. He... <laughs> I don't mean to spoil the story. You know what? I won't spoil the story. Let's first talk about your experience. You'll describe what it was like. And then at the end, you'll tell us what he finally said with regard to the outcome. Okay, so describe the day then. What is the process? Who's watching over you for safety purposes? And for that matter, how did you train for this? So the process is very interesting. It's very different from any other marathon swimming attempt. In this case... Mother Nature has a big say, and this is part of why I am so intrigued by open water swimming. We can't set a date, a solid date ahead of time to decide when we're going to do it. We have to wait until the channel says it's okay to swim me. So I arrive in London or and then Dover, and there's a lot of hurry up and wait. So I arrive and I take a swim, I have a snack, I take a nap, and I wait. And then I do it again. I have a swim, I eat, I take a nap, and I wait. And when the captain says, okay, the water is looking acceptable, the wind is looking acceptable on the English side and the French side, we can try now. So I got a call probably about 8 p.m. that we would be leaving the dock at 2 a.m. in the morning. And you arrive at the starting point at what time? So we arrive about 1 a.m. to the dock in Dover, to the harbor, and we load up our boat. We have a 28-foot fishing boat uh, in which we have a captain we have two officials from the Channel Swimming and Piloting Association and my coach and my crew. How many people try this? 
Well, let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. Is it 10 people a year, 20 people a year? Is it has it become like Everest where there are 1,000 people who try it despite the fact that they really shouldn't? Uh, are there Sherpa for this? <laughs> Absolutely not. No Sherpa. This is a solo endeavor. However, in that solo endeavor, I do have a very trusted uh, team of coaches and crew. I would say at this point, probably... 20 to 50 people will attempt it over the course of the summer, and of that, the success rate is still pretty low. I would venture to say below 50%. And let me ask a New York Jewish question. Who pays for this? I pay for this. I was offered by a few charities to raise money for them in exchange for helping me, and I decided that this was my personal quest and I saved up money specifically so that I could pay for my entire swim and for my coach and crew to come along with me. I'm very impressed because in my life, if I want to give stock off, I want to give charity, then I have a little can and I drop a coin in. What you do is you have a little channel and you drop yourself in and then you swim, What? How? what's the distance again? It's 22 nautical miles. Right, that's right. You said 22 nautical miles. in uh, the water temperature? was 59. 59. A balmy 59. A balmy 59 right. from what I had been training in. Right. No penguins in this water, only fellow Russians. <laughs> Correct. Right. And by the way, I can joke about Russians because I, too, have Russian stock in my blood, <laughs> so it's okay. Poking poking a little gentle fun at myself as well. And what's the training? How, how do you build up? When you do a running or a land marathon, you have distances. You'll do a 5K, you'll do a 10K, you'll taper. There's four days a week. There's a schedule. Is it like that when you're training to do a long-distance swim as well? It's similar to that. However, in comparison, the marathon swim is a lot longer time frame than, let's say, a marathon run. So the average marathon runner, you tell me what would be a decent marathon running time. Probably under three hours for the casual runner and somewhere around two and a half hours, I'm guessing, based on the runners that I know for uh, a standard uh, full marathon on land. So a general marathon swim, and the term marathon swim can at this point refer to anything 10K and above. So a 10K, which is 6.2 miles, would take a decent swimmer probably about that two and a half or three hour time frame. So for a 22 to 26 to 28 mile marathon swim, we're talking upwards of 12 12 hours to 14 hours to sometimes even an 18 or 20 hour swim. Wow. And what's your pace? And I I know as as a swimmer, I can feel whether I'm on pace. I mean, literally, I can place my hand millimeters differently. If somebody tells me you're you're reaching uh, a little bit too in, you know, you should be at... Uh, a little more 9 o'clock rather than 8 o'clock. I can adjust because I have that sensitivity. Your sensitivity must be otherworldly. Definitely with a lot of training, I have a lot of sensitivity. Generally, swimming is measured in in your 100 pace or your mile pace. And your 100 pace is? At the time that I was swimming, my 100 pace was about a 120 in a 50-meter pool. Okay, and just for point of comparison, I'm usually more like a 140. And I realize 20 seconds doesn't seem like that much, but in the water, it's a world of difference. And you're all American, is that right? I'm all American in the 10K. In the 10K. What does that mean? How do you achieve that status? Um, So competing in the 10K through U.S. Masters Swimming, in which you place first in your age group. And how many times did you do that? There's not very many 10K swims. um, A few times. So uh, here's a question for you then. Would you say that you excel at, and please don't take this the wrong way, 
or if you want to take it the wrong way, and then after this, we'll never talk again, which would be a shame, but you know. Have you excelled at long-distance swimming because you're really good at it, or because you simply outlast the vast majority of other people, or both? I think that's a great question. I can definitely outlast, and that's something I discovered about myself through the course of training. As I mentioned, I was a decent college swimmer. I was a decent open water racer. And as the distances got longer and the water got colder, I would go up and up in the field. So I don't know whether it's a developed talent or whether it was something that was inside of me that I just had to cultivate. I don't think I knew about it until I started doing it. Are there other swimmers in your family? No. Huh. Uh, what do you eat? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> do you eat anything you want or do you have specific types of food, particularly before you jump in the channel, that you eat? Well, luckily I really enjoy eating. And so being a swimmer gives me a lot of leeway to enjoy a lot of foods. My personal nutrition ideology is that I eat what I crave. And so I really enjoy full fat ice cream and whole milk and I don't do anything that's low fat or low sugar. I eat what is naturally occurring. Comments, questions, or you just want to fetch? Go to facebook.com slash the world according to Gore. We're speaking with Bonnie Schwartz, distance swimmer extraordinaire. We're talking about her swim across the English Channel between England and France. And which side did you start on again? England. You started on the English side. Actually, let me rephrase that. Yes. You asked me the question again. We leave from England, but I start the swim. Uh, no, that's not true. I started in England and France. Okay. Well, one thing that confuses mm -hmm. me is you say you got on a boat in order to start. Why did you have to get on a boat? Why didn't you just jump off Big Ben and go for it? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, so we load up the boat in Dover Harbor, and then the boat goes out of the harbor and goes around to Shakespeare Beach. It's just another beach that's nearby the harbor. And I jump off of the boat, and I swim out to Shakespeare Beach so that I can stand on Shakespeare Beach clear of the water. And does that count? So what counts is that I start my channel swim from the land in England, and I end it on the land in France without anyone touching me. Uh -huh. So the preparation is on the boat, and then the boat goes to Shakespeare Beach. I jump off, and I swim to the land, and it's not until I have the signal to go from the land that my swim actually starts. And do you leave talking in iambic pentameter and arrive talking in French? Absolutely. In fact, I had several hours in the channel in which to prepare my speech in French. Your soliloquy. <laughs> my soliloquy in yes, French. <laughs> yes. So now we have left England. We are in the water at 2 a.m. There's no in-flight movie. <laughs> no, it's just about as close to pitch black as you can get. And it's cold and dark and you really have no sense of where you are. And how do you know which way to go? So the boat has lights on it so that I can follow the boat. I have a glow stick on my head so that they can see where I am. And then we proceed to swim and swim and swim. Do you see anything ahead of you? I don't see anything ahead of me. In fact, one of the stories that we spoke about was that I saw a light off in the distance. And I was excited because I would have something to use as relative position. And after several hours, the light, in my opinion, hadn't moved, and I started to get a really nervous and start to freak out, and there might have been a few tears in my goggles, and it wasn't until the sun came up that I realized that it was another boat out in the distance that was also moving. 
What do you do for feeding? So this is what I've worked out with my coach. And every 30 minutes, she would throw out a bottle attached to a string so that it landed in front of me. And I would briefly pause and tread some water and drink. Uh, I had a carbohydrate solution that uh, I will never drink again after drinking it so much. And I would take about 20 seconds to drink and close it up and she'd reel it back in and I would start swimming again. How do you hydrate? Uh, that's it. I would just, just be drinking what she would be throwing out to me. I would drink some water, uh, drink some carbohydrate solution, and then usually rinse with some mouthwash and keep swimming. Does everything become metabolized or do you have to go to the bathroom? Oh, I like to think that I added some clean to the to the channel. Forgive me, but it, it's a logical question. It, it's actually something that we have to deal with as an open water swimmer. One of the signs that some things aren't going well is that you're not you're oh, not releasing. right because you're dehydrating. Mm -hmm. That's the sign. Right. Yeah. Do you get any kind of headaches or muscle aches or anything? Um, at this point at, at, in my training, I was pretty prepared for everything. But a, a sign that you're not doing well is that you're not drinking and that you're not uh, releasing. Do you have a sense of time? Do you know how far along you are? Is anybody giving you a feeling for, okay, you're in your third day, only four <laughs> days to go? <laughs> so I know that every 30 minutes my coach is going to throw out a bottle. So I can base it on, I know what it feels like to swim for 30 minutes, and I anticipate the bottle coming. However, in terms of distance covered, I have no idea. And at one point I asked my coach after I thought what would be about halfway through, just feeding time-wise. Am I halfway yet? And she looked at me and started clapping and saying, great job, you're doing great, keep swimming. And so I thought maybe she didn't hear me. And I said, am I halfway yet? And she repeated, great job, you're doing great, keep swimming. <laughs> when did you start to feel any kind of fatigue? Probably about hour seven, I felt a really sharp pain in my shoulder. And I had gotten hit by a pretty rough wave. In hindsight, I had torn a muscle in my rotator cuff, but given that I was already in cold water and in pain and wanted to keep swimming, I just, as much as I could, ignored it. I figured if I got out of the water, it was still going to hurt, and then I wouldn't have finished the swim, or I could just keep going. And I couldn't think of anything in the world that could be worse than not finishing the swim and having to come back and do it again. Bonnie Schwartz, did you encounter in your channel swim any marine life? Mostly just little jellies that came up to say hello. And by say hello, I mean sting me. What does a jellyfish sting feel like? Feels like you're getting zapped. Electricity. Yeah, it feels electric, like an electric zap on your arm or on your leg or on your mouth or on your, you know, anywhere on your body. Mm. And you described to me earlier tentacle wrapping around your arm or something like that? Yeah, sometimes mm. you can get the tentacle wrapped around your arm and then you... Afterwards, you look and you see a nice red welt in the shape of the tentacle. How do you get rid of the thing that's wrapped around your arm? Well, there's a little freaking out. There's a little shaking. There's a little explicit language. And then usually it comes off of you. Oh, so it releases itself. It will release itself. And actually, the best remedy for the jellyfish is salt water. And lo and behold, I'm in a lot of salt water. Well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> the sun has come up. What do you see? Nothing. Really? I see a lot of water. <laughs> when do you see something again? So from my perspective on the water, I really don't see anything. If I look behind me, I could see the White Cliffs of Dover for many hours, and many hours more than I wanted to be seeing the White Cliffs of Dover. However, for my crew that was a few feet or several feet above me, 
they at some point could see land, the French land, which I couldn't see. So they told me, we can see land, and in my state in the water, I told them they were lying to me and I didn't want to speak to them anymore. <laughs> Tell us about the conclusion of the race. So it was just a lot, a lot, a lot of swimming. The only things I saw during the, during the swim were jellies stinging me and lots of big cargo ships. So... Did they see you? Did anybody, you know, when you drive by a trucker, you make that uh, elbow thrust to get them to honk the horn? Anybody do the foghorn in support of you? Oh, I wish. Uh, I think I'm a little too small for them to see me. That's part of why you need a boat to escort you. And the boat is in contact with the Coast Guard who makes sure that we know where the boats are. We know where the cargo ships are. The cargo ships are not going to stop for me. So... The meaning of sprint when it comes to distance swimming is if you don't make it past this point where the boat's going to run you over, you either get out or you get run over by a boat. So that's sprinting and distance swimming. And I imagine there are currents that have a danger of sending you off course. Yeah. Because it's not like on land where you go from point A to point B, you're getting shoved to this side and that side, and your distance may be 20-some nautical miles, and that ends up being 30 because you're off course. You hit the nail on the head. Um, Were you on course? It depends on what you consider course. So from point A to point B, the currents are going across me. So think of think of the currents going up and down while I'm trying to go across. So instead of what would be a straight line, it turns into a giant S curve. So at some point, if you're you know, where speed comes in as a distance swimmer is if you don't make certain points before the current shifts, you either get pushed way too far off course or you do a lot of extra swimming to catch up. So my swim was probably from the GPS plot about 30 miles. Tell us about the end of the race. When you were reaching land in France, what were your feelings and what was it like to get out of the water and actually stand again? Could you stand? <laughs> well, when I finally was able to see land in France, it was incredibly overwhelming. I had been thinking about it the whole way. I was imagining being able to look up and see a coastline ahead of me. So at the point at which I could see it was very, very close to the end of the swim. So while my crew could probably see France three or four hours ahead of time, I don't think I saw it until about an hour left of the swim. And at that point, an hour is a long time when you can see land and you can't reach it. The interesting thing about the channel is that it goes from being dark salt water in England to much lighter fresh water in France. Mm. So as lovely as it was to hit fresh water, it's actually much harder to swim in fresh water. You're not as buoyant and the feeling you have in the water is different. So once I was able to see land, I did have a renewed sense of, I am going to finish this. There was definitely a lot of pain in my shoulder. There was, I could feel the sunburn on my back. I could feel the jellyfish stings where they were. And I finally was getting close enough that I could see rocks on the bottom of the channel. And unfortunately, since there's no determined endpoint, since we're at the mercy of the channel we just arrive on wherever we arrive and so I came to a rocky beach and there were a couple of sunbathers who were oddly unfazed by my arrival I think they might have thought perhaps I just jumped off a boat a few feet out and swam in so uh, I basically in order to finish a successful channel swim you have to you have to be clear of the water so I arrive at a rocky beach and no it's very difficult to stand so I basically crawled up on the on the rocky shore, you know, with tears in my goggles and climbed out and was able to just stand long enough to clear the water, 
throw my arms over my head in victory and then fall down on the rocks and then have no no uh, no reaction from any of the French sunbathers. <laughs> How long did you sleep? <laughs> I think, well, before I was able to sleep, I only had 10 minutes in France before legally I had to be out because there's no customs on the shore. <laughs> so I had to get right back in the water and swim a few feet, which was just felt like eternity, back to the boat because the boat couldn't dock in France either. So I well, climbed climb back on the boat and it's about a three hour ride back to England. Bonnie Schwartz, thanks very much for being on The World According to Gorf. Before we let you go back to running the Brecha at Camp Ramah, Ojai, California, where we are right now, if you had to give words of inspiration for other Jewish girls out there who are interested in excelling at sports, what would that be? Just do what you feel like you want to do. Don't let anyone else tell you that it's not for girls, it's not for Jewish girls. Who was your hero growing up? My grandmother. Why? Because she was a strong, progressive Jewish woman. She was a teacher in New York City, and she was lovely and always encouraged me to do whatever was right for me. And if she were here right now with us, what do you think she would say? Well, first she would ask us to repeat it because she had difficulty hearing, and then she would say that she was very proud of us. What? What? <laughs> Let me get Grandpa on the phone. He'll, he'll, he'll listen for me. That's great. Bonnie Schwartz, it's been such a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. And we look forward to being in touch and seeing your continued success in the world of swimming and, of course, as an inspiration to Jewish people everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Slime, 
Now it's time for your favorite part of the show, Torah Me Star Trek. Welcome to Torah Me Star Trek. This is your chief engineer and navigator, Dr. Jeff Lautman along with Private Third Class Gorf. And you know, it's the end of the year, and so I thought we'd take a little retrospective and do what Star Trek does so often, change the timeline. I want to tell you about how Gorf and Lautman met and interact, and that is at a wonderful at least I hope so, sheer that is given at the Young Israel of Cleveland. And right now we're doing Shmuel and we're in Shmuel Bet at a very difficult location, and that is the story of David and Batsheva. Now, you may ask how this relates to Star Trek, and I'm going to show you that indeed David HaMelech will play out exactly as a Star Trek character, and I hope you have seen the last two movies. Let's look at... Perak Yud Bet, the twelfth Perak of Shmuel Bet Samuel two. In that Perak, the Navi Natan comes to David and gives him the parable about the rich man and the poor man. And I will tell you that Natan uses the letters Yud K Vav K for God throughout his parable, and when he then tells David that you are the guilty one. Natan goes back to his house, and in the 15th Pasuk it says, Vayigof Hashem Asayelet. In those 15 Psukim, the name Hashem is used eight times by my count. In Pasuk Tetzayin, it says, Vayavakesh David et Elohim biyad The question is, why didn't it say Vayavakesh David et Hashem? Why did it change to Elohim? We'll get back to it. But the clue is, your tefillah to Hashem is different than your tefillah to Elohim. 
the story continues that David fasted and prayed for the young child. And then on the seventh day, the child died. The Avde David were afraid to tell him that the child died because via Sarah, he would do something ra to himself, to them. David recognizes that the child has died. And he that asks his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he is dead. Then Pasuk 20 is a very interesting Pasuk. Vayakam David Meha'aretz. David gets up from the ground. Vayachatz, he bathes himself. Vayasach, he puts on some kind of oils. Vayachalev simlosav, changes his clothes. Vayavo Beit Hashem, he comes back to the Beit Hashem. Vayishtachu, he bows down. Vayavo al Beito, he goes to his house. Vayishau, asks of what are the matters. Vayasimu lolachem, they give him bread, vayochal. What do you notice about that psukim? The preponderance of verbs. Vayakam, one. Vayirchatz, two. Vayasach, three. Vayachalef, four. Vayavo, five. Vayishtachu, six. Vayavo again, seven. Vayishal, he asks, eight. And vayochal, nine. David does nine actions. His servants are then wondering... Why aren't you mourning? Why aren't you crying? And David's answer is quite logical. When the child was alive, I fasted and I cried because maybe I can get God, Hanani Hashem, and the child will live. And now he's died. What purpose would there be? If I can't bring him back, I'm just headed his way. It's a quite a logical explanation. And by the way, Josephus says that his servants admired him for such wisdom. Just as an aside, it's always interesting to read Shmuel, along with Divri Hayamim and Josephus and the Abarbanel and Star Trek, which is what we're doing. Now, you should have picked up the clue that his reasoning was logical. What did he not do when the child died? He did not grieve. What did he do? He was very logical, and he acted. Let's skip ahead to the 19th parak, and this Avshalom passes away. In the 19th parak, the Pesach says, Vayir Gaz HaMelech, the king becomes angry. When you become angry, you can lose control. Vayal Al Yata Shar he goes up to the top of the gates and cries, Vechomar. And this is what he says as he goes, Belachto, Beni Avshalom, Beni, Beni Avshalom. My son, Avshalom, my son, my son. Mi ten musi, Ani If it only could be that I would die instead of you, Avshalom, Beni, Beni. The word Beni said many times. The king is saying this in anger. I would like to suggest the following. When the child born of the union of David and Bathsheba dies, David HaMelech does not grieve. He rather acts logically like a Vulcan, like Spock would. And that grief is still within him and is simmering. It does not make it through with the death of Amnon, but with the death of Avshalom, 
when the king is in a state of vayirgaz, of anger, when he's in a state of emotion, the accumulated grief over all three children comes out. Beni Avshalom, Beni, Beni Avshalom. The word Beni is said many times because at this moment, David is grieving over all three. All the grief pours out. And his plea is, I should have been the one to die. Remember at the beginning of this talk, I said, David does not pray to Hashem, he prays to Elohim. Hashem is typically attributed to the Midas Achesed of God. And Elohim is the Midas Adin. What would have been the prayer of David? It would have been simply that as Din would require, since he sinned, he should be the one to die, not the child. So when David grieves for Avshalom, he exposes to us what his prayer was when he was praying for the child of David and Bathsheba. Somewhat reminiscent of Spock, especially in the two new movies. When Spock's mother dies and Uhura comes to comfort him, what is his response? I expect all members of the crew to perform admirably. It's a logical action response, similar to the response of David HaMelech when the child born of David and Bathsheba passes away. In the next movie, when he loses control of his emotions, we have the famous scene of him yelling Khan, just like in Star Trek II. So, when I read this story, and of suppressed emotions and grief, it reminds me of Star Trek. The only thing I don't know is, how did the prophets who combined to write the book of Samuel get to watch the Star Trek movie before I did? Well, this is Chief Engineer and Navigator Dr. Jeff Lautman, along with my good friend Gorf, wishing everybody a Shana Tova, a Shana Shalom, a Shana of Limud Torah in Star Trek. We shall be back. And when you come to Cleveland, you are welcome to join our Shear, boldly going where no Shear has gone before. and prosper. And thus we reach the end of another episode of The World According to Gorf on The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. As always, you can follow me on Facebook, The World According to Gorf page. Please give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And visit me on jewishcartoon.com. That's jewishcartoon.com for your weekly dose of Jewish humor. And for the best in Jewish vocal entertainment, Pella Singers. That's PellaSingers.com. If you have an asimcha, bar bat mitzvah, wedding, you need some vocal entertainment, please go to PellaSingers.com. And until next time, this is Gorf wishing you Shalom. Shalom.